This morning we are returning to our lectionary text, which is the text provided for churches who choose to preach from it by the cloud, the cloud of witnesses who gather together and work out a process so that we pretty much go through most of the important texts in the Bible over a three-year period. This morning's text, as have been in the past season from the Gospel of Matthew, it comes near the end of Jesus' ministry in chapter 23, verses 1 through 13. May God open up to us an understanding of this word. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees, that is the religious authorities, sit on Moses' seat. They know the law. Therefore do whatever they teach you and follow it. But do not do as they do. For they do not practice what they preach. They create heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on the shoulders of others. But they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their stoles broad and their robes long. They love to sit at the head of the table at banquets, the best seats in the synagogues. And to be greeted with respect and have people call them pastor at the Jaguars games as they sit in the club seats. (laughs) My edit. But you were not called. You were not to be called rabbi. For you have one teacher. And you are all students. And call no one your father on earth. For you have one father, the one in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. All who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. I didn't serve. I didn't really serve. These were the first words out of my mentor, preacher friend's mouth. The last conversation I had with him just weeks before he died of cancer. I didn't serve, he said, and he, and he looked down and I said, is that what you're afraid of? Tell me, what is it you're afraid of? One of my greatest fears, he said, is that when I die and go to heaven and meet God, whether it is a he or a she, and he laughed, is that he will ask me the question, how did you spend your life? And then my whole life will pass before me. And I will remember all those times that I chose to serve myself rather than God or others. What do you mean, I asked. He was our mentor. Everywhere I turned, you were serving others. In your pastorate, you were caring for them. In the pulpit, you 
we're always blowing our minds with your incredible wisdom and theology. You served in justice issues uh, around the city. What do you mean? He remembered the passage at the end of Matthew, he said. Yes. When Jesus says, whenever you fed the hungry and housed the homeless and clothed the naked, cared for the poor, whenever you did this to the least of these, you did so to me. But you did it all the time. Maybe. But. What I remember most are the times I chose to turn away with an excuse that I had done enough, that I was too busy taking care of this big church. And now that I look back on my life, I'm left with this fear. Really, you did serve, yes, but you served, yes, But what more could you have done? Plenty. He continued to teach me, don't you see that as much about what this is is that I did it for myself, that I enjoyed the accolades, that I enjoyed the praise, that I did it for me as much as I did it for anyone else? Well, that's true for all of us, I said. Yes, he said, but that doesn't make it right. Continuing to be the teacher, he said, there's this passage in Matthew where Jesus points out the priests, the religious authorities in the temple, wearing their phylacteries and long robes, and he calls them hypocrites. So I fear that when I face God and I am asked, what and how did you live your life that all I will be able to show for it deep down is that I really didn't practice what I preached. He died several weeks later, but he left me struggling over this issue ever since, which is probably why I tend to preach more about grace than the law. It's not hard to live up to the need for grace, but when it comes to preaching about the law and how we're called to live up to the law of Moses... I'm a hypocrite. I don't practice it as I should. Just take love your neighbor as yourself. It's hard. It's hard. Now you probably think my friend is being hard on himself just as I did when he was saying it to me that he's got this neurotic guilt hair shirt thing working that he's still stuck on himself, that he was really that important, after all, to think that God would hold him so accountable to such a huge responsibility. But at the heart, he was a pastor, a person who takes care of others. And looking back, not only was he confessing his own shortcomings, he was teaching me and all of us a lesson. It's hard to tell when you're caring for others whether or not it's really about me. Preachers and do-gooders fall into this all the time. It's true for all of us. I'm not just talking about ministers. 
In reality, we all share the same mixed motives for our acts of services, whether it's making a pledge or making 15,000 meals or working at desk or running a nonprofit or even a business or even a family. We do it for ourselves and our own ego needs for sure, just as much as we do it for others. Especially are we guilty when we convince ourselves that it's not about us, it's about them. And when we fall into that trap, we are living in a righteous and mistakenly good ideal of who we are, and that we are doing the Lord's work, or that we are saved in the doing of it, even if they're not. This is why Jesus' testimony to his disciples and followers this morning is so powerful. It reveals underneath the robes and phylacteries, the righteous clothes that we wear, the reality of who we are. And it points to us religious authorities, and I mean by that all of us, walking around in our own clothes and calls them out. Do as they say, not as they do. How many parents have said that before? For they do not practice what they preach. They parade around in their uniforms, using their priestly power as a a way to get others to serve them laying on burdens and fear and threats of God's punishment if they don't make enough of a temple sacrifice. They don't lift a hand to help and they expect to be bowed to and to get to the best seats in the house. It's one of the privileges afforded clergy. Pretty good gig sometimes, I have to say. When I had my appendicitis attack and was sent to Baptist Hospital by the urgent care facility that I first went to, the Baptist surgeon found out that I was the preacher at Riverside Church and shared how three of his children had gone through Riverside Presbyterian Day School. And as soon as we were talking about that, the anesthesiologist walked in and shared the same story. I was glad that they knew who I was and what I did Grateful of the connection of Riverside Church before they took me in to operate. When it comes to cashing in on being a pastor, there's no better time to play your clergy card than when you're on a gurney. (laughs) Jesus calls us out on this and every privilege we claim, saying, Do as they say, but not as they do, for they do not practice what they preach. When I was telling the story to someone about my shamelessly claiming my clergy card, they called me out on it too, humorously suggesting, but not all that humorous, that what I should have said to the doctors was, just treat me like everyone else. Maybe you should treat me like I am poor and homeless. Which gets to the point of what Jesus is saying when he sums it all up with, The greatest among you will be your servant. And all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. Your servant. The greatest will be your servant, Jesus said. And it begs the question, what does that look like? Well, it looks like Jesus. When I was in Aspen this summer, privilege, clergy privilege of being invited 
the Ideas Festival in June, one of the presentations that I attended was the introduction of the incredible Vietnam War documentary by Burns and Novick. The ground upon which our whole Wednesday night coming up this week will be based on. After introducing it, took 10 years to make. They interviewed over 100 people in in-depth interviews. They tried to be as fair and broad-minded as they could. After that, they showed us about a 15 or 20-minute uh, beginning. It begins the whole documentary, and it begins with the moment that the helicopters are leaving the compound, the American compound, and taking with them the last soldiers and any Vietnamese officials that got a chance to go. And it then shows backwards, slowly going through many of the scenes that we are familiar with. The young girl running down the road after being burned, the general shooting the Viet Cong in the street, the Kent State. Backwards it goes, bombs are coming up out of the explosion, back into the plane, and it goes all the way back to President Truman's announcement that after Korea, we really need to be very intentional that the domino effect does not kick in and the communists will take over the world. And in showing that, we were left with the sense that only if we could go backwards, and then in going backwards, we had a whole new perspective of what this looked like. And after this documentary, I was completely surprised because I found myself weeping. Tears were coming down my eyes. I had no idea why. And I looked around and everyone else was weeping too. To this day, I don't know why for sure I was weeping. At first, I thought it was because of the trauma and the tragedy of the whole Vietnamese, Vietnam debacle. But then I started thinking, you know, it's about my friends who served, who were traumatized too physically and emotionally and spiritually, and it's about our country that was traumatized because so much that we were told turned out not to be right, and that was really the beginning of much of the divisiveness and distrust in our world, in our country today, going back to the Vietnam War. I was crying over all of that. But then it hit me that it's also about me as everything connects to each of us. And I discovered my own remorse, maybe regret would be a better word, that I did not serve. Survivor's guilt? I don't know. But I did not serve. And I probably should have in some capacity, if not in the Vietnam War, at least in the military, maybe as a chaplain, or I could have joined the Peace Corps, or I could have done something productive for our country that would have at least brought some reconciliation in some way, or served the country because the country expects it of us, but I didn't. I was 17 or 18 years old living in Chapel Hill, and every single Wednesday when 12 women would march in a circle on the sidewalk right in front of the Chapel Hill post office right downtown, and I would walk by. I would serve them absolutely no mind. I was completely indifferent. After all, the war was way over there. It didn't affect me because all I really cared about were girls and partying. I didn't serve. What does it mean 
to be a servant. Whoever the greatest is among you will be your servant, and whoever exalts themselves will be humbled, and whoever is humbled will be exalted. It means, again, to live like Jesus. As I read this, Jesus is saying to us that whatever we do for the wellness of others, even if it is tinged with enlightened self-interest, as long as their interest is there and still even might predominate, then we are serving them. For us to know the difference takes awareness. Whether it's more about me or them is what causes all kinds of problems. But being aware of how much our old, big old ego turns us into tiny little maniacs is the beginning of what it means to serve. But it also takes practice, as any virtue or character trait does. The more we serve others without weighing what we will get out of it or keeping score, I mean, I've taken them, taken them 14 meals in the last three years, but they don't even say thank you anymore. The more we do it without keeping score, the more of a servant we are. The more like Jesus we become. And here's the inescapable self-interested part. The more really joyful, grateful, loving, forgiving, full life we will live. This is why we were made to serve God by serving others. And it is only, only possible for us to do so in order to become truly ourselves. I know it's daunting, but it's not. Just do it, as the Nike commercial says. Just serve others without worrying what we will get out of it, in small places or in large places. Anita kept hounding me to read this story in the newspaper about this nationally known Spanish chef named Jose Andres, who, after Irma wiped out Puerto Rico, caught one of the first commercial flights in and began setting up ways to feed people there. In a week, he was running the biggest restaurant in the world by building a network of kitchens, supply chains, and delivery services that ended up serving over 2.2 million fresh meals and sandwiches. No other agency, not the Red Cross, not the Salvation Army, not FEMA, fed more people freshly cooked food in such a loving and nurturing way. One man. He had learned this first by helping those during Hurricane Sandy, and just the month before, he had been in Houston after Harvey serving meals there, too. So he decided to go to Puerto Rico and just start cooking, but nothing prepared him for what he found there. At first, he paid for it with the money in his pockets and then with his credit cards. But each day, the need doubled, and he knew he was in trouble when a Salvation Army truck pulled up and asked him if he could provide 120 fresh-cooked meals. More cooks arrived to help, partnerships were forged, and other aid groups and large companies got involved, too. 
He lost 25 pounds, became dehydrated. They voted him off the island. After a week, he was back on doing the same thing. The effort ended up costing $400,000 a day, paid for by donations from foundations, celebrities, and a flood and a flood of smaller donors, which led eventually to the creation of the World Central Kitchen. In the end, they also got two FEMA contracts. FEMA, who had clashed with him all along because they were convinced that he didn't have the expertise or the experience and should follow the rules. We're not in a perfect world, he said, but we are doing it without red tape and a hundred meetings. Mr. Andres flew back home to Washington a week ago and said, this has been like my own little Vietnam, but now I need to go back to a normal life. He never intended to stay that long or to feed an island. And what he said at the end sums up what truly a servant looks like. He said, at the end, I couldn't forgive myself if I didn't try to do what I thought was right. We need to think less sometimes and dream less and just make it happen. Just make it happen. And it is but not always where we look for it in the large institutional places, but bubbling up in you and around. Even in business, UPS and IBM are designing ways, pro bono, to quickly supply logistical and technical help. It's happening in churches like Riverside, where we did 15,000 meals today. This is not about us and where we support so many local agencies like Desk and Tradition House and the Sanctuary and Presbyterian Social Ministries. We are a busy place. And the point is that all of us can do something. If we can't stand on our feet, then we can use the telephone or we can write a note to someone. We can at least pray. We can make it happen. And all it takes is awareness and will and practice and practice. In the end, when we face our maker, will we say that we hid our light under a bushel or we buried our gift in the sand or that we tried to be good stewards of the life we were given? Even if our own egos sometimes get mixed up in it all, just make it happen.